We are continuing in our study of Acts, and we are in chapter 23, and we're going to read that in just a moment, but just to kind of catch us up for where we are, um, if you remember last week we were in the, the first 11 uh, verses of chapter 23, Paul is done with his missionary journeys, he is facing many more trials now, looking at being jailed being arrested, even fighting off those who would want to kill him and plot to do so, which is what we're going to look at today. And so as we get into the second part of chapter 23 of the book of Acts, heading towards the end of this book, it's been a long study, you know, what we see happening, remember the subplot of this whole book, is the Holy Spirit at work. You know, this book is about the church on a mission. It's the unstoppable mission of the church as it begins and as it grows. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads the way. And I had mentioned before that we could probably preach that sermon every Sunday through the book of Acts, talking about how the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and directing. And it really is no different here today. Because what we're going to see is we're going to see that even though there is a plot again to kill the Apostle Paul, God's sovereign will prevails. And then of course we'll see what does that mean for us. So this is a long part of Scripture. It is Acts 23. It's verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 35. So I'm going to read it. Just kind of sit back and listen. It'll be up on the screen for us as well. And just kind of keep it in context of this story about what's going on with the Apostle Paul. That there is a plot to kill him. There are those that want to do away with him and his preaching. But God has the last word. So let's read it. It says in verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. Neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders. They said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So we can even stop right there in our reading. Do you see what's happening? There is a plot unfolding, right? A plot unfolding to kill the Apostle Paul. So in verse 16, it says, But when the son of Paul's sister, the first time we've heard about him or her, when he heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. And the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and he asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. So the commander took the young man by the hand. He drew him aside and he asked, what is it that you want to tell me? And he said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink 
until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. So the commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone. They have reported this to me. So then he called two of his centurions, and he ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows, and here's what the letter said. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted you to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, they took Paul with them during the night, and they brought him as far as Antiparatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned all the way to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and they handed Paul over to him. And the governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Did you follow that along? It's a long story, right? But it's a long part of a bigger story. But just in summary, here's what's going on. Do you see there is this plot that's brewing to kill the Apostle Paul. And there is this group that the centurion, that the tribune, they have to save Paul from. And so when the leader of the troops finds out what the, uh, the charges are and what they want to kill him for, he sends him to Governor Felix and with a letter. And he says, here's the deal. Here's what's going on with this guy. I want you to have him and you can find out what's going on. Right? But isn't it also interesting, did you see that we kind of met a new person, a new character in our story? It didn't necessarily give his name, but it says it was Paul's sister's son, so his nephew. So Paul's nephew comes and helps him says, I, got, you know, I can help, I can stand up for you, I can speak on your behalf. So he says, go, tell the tribune, right? tell the commander. And he does, and he listens to him. He says, don't tell anybody what you told me. But here was a message. Do you see, what's so awesome here is that God is working out all of the details to allow Paul to continue on his journey. So that's really the context of our story today. If you look back at verse 11, this is what we focused on last week. This was the crux of the message last week and sort of where we ended. And then what we just read came right after this. Do you remember what happened, what God did for Paul when we've been talking about, even the last few weeks, about how God provides for us in our times of trial and struggle? Even when we might not see what he's doing or understand his timing, God is still at work. 
and he can be trusted because look at what it says when paul was in distress it says the following night the lord stood by him and said take courage for just as you have testified to the facts about me here in jerusalem so you must also in rome Remember that? So that's what we focused on last week, saying, hey, look, Jesus came and stood by him. His presence was made known, and that comforted Paul. And then he recognized, you've done a lot for me here in Jerusalem. Don't be discouraged. It seems like everything's coming down around you. But take courage. I recognize what you're doing now. You're being obedient and faithful, so therefore you must go to Rome. Remember, Paul had wanted to go to Jerusalem, but only then to eventually get to Rome. That's what Paul wanted to do, and God is saying to him, you will get there. He says, you must. So we translate that word, you must go to Rome. So therefore, if God says, you must go to Rome, if he makes that promise and says, it will happen, shouldn't Paul then trust that it will work? But then right after that, we see that there's a plot to kill him, and the plot is thickening. And there's all of these details happening, and even Paul's nephew gets involved. But God is at work, behind the scenes, working all of the details out so that Paul can get to Rome. See, the lesson here for us today is simple. God's sovereign will always prevails. Therefore, we can trust him. Just as he has a plan for Paul, does he not also have a plan for us? Right? And so, therefore... We can trust him. But here's what I'd like to do. We're not going to spend much time in this passage. It is our context for today as we go through the book of Acts. But what I want to do is I just want to use a point from uh, a scene in the history of the Old Testament that really sheds light on this same idea that even though things seem bleak, and we are suffering trials and people in, in, in God's um, plans are going through tribulations and struggles. God promises that he will be there with them and work out all the details. And it is only for us to trust and to be obedient. And so what I want to look at is I want to look at Isaiah 7. There's going to be just one main verse, Isaiah 7:14. if you recognize it. It has everything to do with this season that we're in, doesn't it? It is uh, a verse that is often read during this time of year. Today is actually the first Sunday of the Advent season. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it uh, ends with Christmas Eve. And so Advent um, begins with this idea of hope. See, this time of year in the sort of the high church liturgical calendar Uh, The church, Christians from all over the world, will celebrate four things in particular, virtues that Jesus brings to his people. And it always starts with hope. And that is today, the first Sunday of the Advent season, that the focus is on hope. But then it goes to love and to joy and to peace, right? Things that only Jesus can truly give us in this world. But yes, we should have hope on this first day of that season, that we should have hope and celebrate that. Why? Because God's sovereign will always prevails that should give us encouragement and that should give us hope so here's the context of this very popular verse i mean what does the verse say it says therefore the lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name emmanuel 
So here's what's going on in, uh, in that context. And then, of course, we see it in Matthew. We'll get to that in a moment. But because Matthew then um, quotes this scripture, gives even more context to it. But what's interesting here is this. This was in sort of the 700s B.C. And we see that the king over the southern tribe of Judah was called King Ahaz. You remember at the time, unfortunately, because of previous kings, Israel had been divided into two. You had the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, or often called Ephraim. And then you had the two southern tribes, which we call Judah. And so there was a separation. They each had their own king. During this time in history, when we read that verse, what is happening here is that God is giving a sign to the king of Judah at that time. It was King Ahaz. See, what's going on, which is really not um, uncommon for the history that we read about in the Old Testament, but there were other nations that were warring or threatening to attack and war against Judah, including Israel, including Ephraim, the ten northern tribes, along with an alliance with Syria, they wanted to take over and displace King Ahaz and replace him with somebody that was more favorable to what they wanted to do. See, Nineveh was still uh, a force at this time. And Nineveh had a king who was wicked. But even during King Ahaz's distress, and he was not a believer. It says elsewhere in Kings, he was, he was a wicked king, a bad king. He even looked to the enemy, to the king of Nineveh, for help with these others that were around him. And basically, the king of Nineveh was like, I'm going to take them over anyway. So it was this weird alliance. But basically what was happening is that the northern kingdom and Syria, they wanted to fight against Nineveh. And they said, King Ahaz, we want your help. Join our alliance. And he says no for various reasons. He won't do it. And so they say, okay, well then, we're just going to depose you and we're going to replace you with somebody that we like, that's sort of in our camp. And so King Ahaz is frightened. So as Isaiah in chapter 7 and other chapters is is, uh, involved in this and involved in in, uh, bringing the word of God to King Ahaz of Judah... He basically says, King, I have a message to you from God that God will protect you. That God will make sure that your enemies do not prevail over you if only you are to believe. So here's what Isaiah says. He says, the King Ahaz, he says, look, I know that you're fearful. You're fearful of what's going to happen. But he says, If you would only believe, you can even ask God for a sign. God's giving you permission to ask for a sign. Now, we're told we shouldn't be asking God for signs, right? In this instance, God says, it's okay, ask for a sign and I'll give you one. And King Ahaz curiously says no. See, he's, he sounds like in the story that he's trying to be righteous, you know, and he says, I will not test the Lord in this. But basically, he was just kind of hedging his bets. So there's a lot going on in that story, but for our purposes today, King Ahaz says no to a sign. You know what God says? I'm going to give you a sign anyway, but it's really not going to help you. I'm going to give a sign to the whole house of David. Because think about the connection and why I'm bringing this up. Why would God give a sign through Isaiah as we read in 714? 
right? That a virgin shall give birth to a son. His name will be called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? We're going to see that more in a second. So God is giving a sign to King Ahaz anyway, but more importantly, to the descendants of Judah, because of the Davidic covenant, the covenant he made with King David, right? And he says, there will always be, whenever there's a king, he will always be of the line of David and the tribe of Judah. What is the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Through the line of David and of Judah, the line of Judah. And so God has to, in his sovereign will, because he promised it, he has to preserve Judah. So he says to the wicked king Ahaz, if you will not believe, I will give even a sign to the descendants then. It is for you, but you won't believe. So I'm giving this to the whole house of David, that a virgin will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. We know that means God with us. They would have known. Isaiah knew. King Ahaz knew what that meant. God is with you. Isn't that great that when we are in times of distress or trial or struggle, no matter what it might look like, we can be rest assured that God is with us. That, of course, is a grand theme of the Christmas season. God with us. Now, you know, our son Luke currently lives in Hawaii. And some of you know that. And he works there. He works in the film industry. And he's been there for... Uh, way too long, according to me and Claudia. But, um, and he's really, really far away. We got a chance to visit him, if you remember that, a couple of months ago. And man, it's far. It takes almost six hours to get to California and then about another six to get to Hawaii. It's really out in the middle of nowhere. If you look at a map, you really can't even see Hawaii, right? It's usually like in the bottom corner, like, yeah, there's some islands there. And so we talk to our son often and, and praise God for things like FaceTime and Skype. So we can just see his face, you know, and he's doing well. He's doing really well. And, and uh, it even seems like maybe he'll be there longer than April when, when his project is done. And we don't know what God has in store. But, you know, the other day I heard on the news, and probably you heard it too, that uh, Hawaii became the first state to test a statewide alarm system in the case of a nuclear attack. Did you hear that? And so there were a lot of tourists in Waikiki and around, and Claudia is really probably not, you know, glad that I'm sharing this, talking about that. But of course, why would Hawaii do that? Because of where North Korea is. And we know what's been in the news, right? We don't have to dwell on that, but all of these threats, and so you have places like Guam and Hawaii that are now testing these alarms for their people, should there be an imminent threat. So I wouldn't say that they are fearful, but they are preparing I wouldn't say Luke is fearful at all, but his parents are fearful, see? It's like King Ahaz. There is this threat of attack from other nations, right? But God is like sounding the warning alarm saying, it's okay, I will protect you if only you are to believe. And that's the great context of this verse, Isaiah seven fourteen. Right? That a virgin will give birth. And then what does it say in Matthew chapter 1? When Matthew quotes this, he says when he's talking about the birth of Jesus, right? And that his name will be called Jesus and and Joseph and Mary. And then he says all of this, what he just described, took place to do what? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
prophet being Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. He just quoted Isaiah 7.14. And then he gives us that great meaning. He says, which means God with us. It's Emmanuel. It really translates to with us, God. Our God is with us. So that should give us great uh, encouragement and hope as we begin that Advent season in anticipation of the celebration of Jesus' first Advent as a baby in a manger. But don't we also know that this time of year we don't only look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, but it also reminds us that He will come again, right? There is what we call the second advent when Jesus will return to establish His kingdom and rule for a thousand years. It is important to note that elsewhere in Scripture it says, and we know this, we hear it all the time, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us what? A son is given. See, a child is born, a baby is born, but it doesn't say the son is born, the son is given. And I think that distinction is important. A child is born, but the Son is given. Who gives us the Son? Our Heavenly Father. Right? Why? He gives us the Son. We know why Messiah was given. He was born to die in our place. But He was also born into this world, what we call the incarnation, God taking on flesh, so that He can dwell among His people. Emmanuel, God with us he tabernacled with us right he made his dwelling among his people his presence known in the person of jesus christ it was a fulfillment of a prophecy from more than 700 years prior through the prophet isaiah to king ahaz but also to the whole house of israel and of judah and he says that there will be a virgin who gives birth to a son. He shall be called Emmanuel because God is with you. See, he's trying to, in the context of what's going on, he's trying to give encouragement and hope to King Ahaz, but he won't believe. But we can also take encouragement and hope from that prophecy that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God preserves his plan in many ways, even though There are attempts by man to thwart it and by Satan. Just like in our passage in Acts. There is a plot to kill the Apostle Paul, but God said, you must go to Rome. So if God says you're going to Rome, do you think you're going to Rome? Yes. No matter what. He even uses Paul's nephew to come and help save the day. But we also see it in the great Christmas story from Isaiah 7 and then quoted in Matthew 1. So it's important to understand that background, but God's providence in Paul's life and God's providence in our life. Remember a while back we talked about the difference between providence and miracle, right? That God works out miracles when He supersedes His natural law, what He created, right? When He takes Himself outside of that and does something we would call miraculous, right? which is above and beyond or outside of the way things normally would work. But God's providence is when He is working out all of the details behind the scenes of our lives. 
we might not always see what it looks like. His timing is perfect, but we would love it to be our timing, wouldn't we? When we pray, we would pray that God would do what we would like in our time. But His timing is perfect. When He gave that promise to King Ahaz, he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. He didn't even believe. But historically we know it was about 65 years later that his enemies of Syria and the northern kingdom of Ephraim or Israel, they were decimated and wiped out by the Assyrians. So it happened, just as God said, because God's sovereign will will always prevail. But that means for us too, and that's why we can have hope. We can have hope every day, all the time. But we especially remember it this time of year, right? And so a few more things as we just kind of close the way we're looking at this. You know, just like in the Christmas story, we can rejoice that God is keeping His promise by sending the Messiah. Of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But we also look forward to His return, right? But that prophecy that God gives in Isaiah 7, it's remarkable for sure. Because in light of man's actions threatening to forever eliminate the tribe of Judah, that's what would happen. If King Ahaz was overthrown, there would have been no more tribe of Judah if his enemies would have prevailed, right? If there was no more tribe of Judah, there would be no Messiah. God promised a Messiah through Judah, through the house of David, so His sovereign will will prevail. So we can also rejoice this Christmas time at the, the virgin birth of the Savior in the midst of all those obstacles. It gives us hope, but also anticipation of His return. Right? The sovereign God controls all the events of history for His purposes. Listen to these other words. They won't be up on the screen, but just listen to these other words of Isaiah if you were to read continuing in Isaiah in chapter 14 and then chapter 46, listen to these words. The Lord of hosts has sworn saying, and this is God saying, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. That's from Isaiah chapter 14. Isn't that cool? God says, just as I have intended, so it's happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. And then later in chapter 46, God says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Not some, but all. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. I will do it. Isn't that awesome that God says that? I planned it. I will do it. But that should give us encouragement today. No matter what his timing may be, that should be a great uh, gift of hope for us. No matter what we may be struggling with at any given time, we know that God is trustworthy. Because really, if we want to boil down our whole walk of faith and our relationship with God and what he expects, can it come down to that one word, trust? We talk about faith, we talk about trust. All God asks of us is that we would trust him. He says, just believe and trust and in that be means obedience right we trust and obey because there's no other way right <laughs> but that's really all he asks he says i'll take care of all the details in your life just seek first my kingdom doesn't it say in romans 8 
that God is working together for good, right? For all those who love Him or are called according to His purpose. He doesn't say everything will be good, but He's going to work out all the things for good. See the difference? So we shouldn't be surprised when things might not go our way or the way we want to or seem like God isn't listening or He's abandoned us. No. God is behind the scenes working out all the details. Working it all together for our good. Because God is the greatest of all promise keepers. So if He says it, He will surely do it. He says, I planned it and I will do it. Three quick things. You know, we're using this uh, great book that we just finished in our community groups called The Anatomy of a Disciple. What does it look like to be a disciple? You know, we believe in Jesus Christ and we have our salvation, right, given to us freely uh, by Jesus Christ through His grace, accepted by our faith. But then we make that decision to be His disciple. What does it look like to be a disciple? And in his book, um, Dr. Taylor, he talks about these three things. He says that God gives us three significant things that he does during our times of difficulty. One, the Spirit of God steps into your weakness and your frailty, your helpless fallen self, and the Spirit asks the Father to help you each and every time you get caught in a difficulty. But then see also, second, the Son of God takes up the groanings of the Spirit on your behalf, and He pleads your case before the Father. He asks for specific actions on the Father's part that will help. And then third, the Father God works in such a way in response to the Spirit and the Son that He causes all those things to happen, even when we disobey, even when we struggle and falter and fail. God is working all those things together for our good. We can certainly be encouraged today to trust Him, to do what He asks us to do, because He certainly is trustworthy. He's a God who makes promises and He makes sure they are fulfilled, even if it's 700 years later, right? Finally, I end with this. If you look at this picture, you'll see up on the screen. If you've ever seen a tapestry, right? Sometimes they're huge. Here's a tapestry on the left. It's a tapestry of a crown. We see this beautiful work of art, right? But do you know what the back of the tapestry looks like? The other picture is the back. If you've ever made something, maybe you knit or sew and you kind of have an idea of what I'm talking about. You knit something all together. While you're doing it, it doesn't look so nice. you got string and threads and, and yarn everywhere, right? So you're making a tapestry. And man, it looks so beautiful. We see the end result, don't we? But look at all that it took behind the scenes to make that beautiful that is god's providence that is god working out his sovereign will we don't always see the end result of what it's going to look like what we're looking for is the crown aren't we we want the beauty of the crown and we want it now and god is saying just trust me i'm working all things together for your good it might look like that Isn't that probably what we see? We're looking for the crown, and what we see is a big old mess. We can't even connect everything together. Where is it all going? We ask that of God. Where is my life headed? Why am I not getting that job that I've been praying for and seeking? And and what about that partner that I've been looking for? Or whatever it might be in your life. We see 
the mess of it. But God is always seeing that crown. He looks at us, He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus Christ's glory that covers us. That's why we can come into His presence. In a moment, we're going to together remember what Lord Jesus did on our behalf. The messiness of it. That His blood had to be shed. His body given for us. We always just want to see the beauty of the crown. But remember, God is at work behind the scenes. He is orchestrating it all. It might seem like a big mess. But all God says is, you don't have to know all the details. We're kind of on a need-to-know basis, aren't we? And He often says, you don't need to know right now. All we need to do is trust. We might look at that and say, how on earth? He says, trust me. Someday you will see that crown. Right? Sometimes that one side is all we see this side of heaven. But one day we'll receive those crowns. So as we look to um, the Lord's table, it's something that we do here as a church family. We do it once a month to remember.